Hello and welcome to the City Business Festival. My name is Kojo Akoto Bakken. Our guest today is somebody who has spent his life thinking about solutions for problems. He's currently the president of the Academic City. He's an inventor with a lot of patents and he lives just to solve problems with science and technology. And we are going to talk about some of the work that he's done and how Ghana can develop using science and technology and how we could also use some of his research to solve some of our basic to some of our very advanced problems and make lives better for all of us. Professor Fred McBagonluri is my guest today on the City Business Festival. Prof, welcome to the City Business Festival. Thank you, Kojo. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> it's good to be talking to you because first time I heard about you, Bernard was interviewing you about your inventions and your patents. The last time I saw you was on City TV and you were working on the respirator um, when COVID-19 hit, um, the early days of COVID-19 in Ghana. You were working on the ventilator so that um, we could use that to help deal with some of our uh, case management issues. For those who don't sure. know Professor Fred Magbagonluri, who, who are you? Tell us about um, yourself briefly and your academic life so far. Well, um, I'm Ghanaian, you know, often people ask me whether McBaganluri is Ghanaian, and I said McBaganluri is as Ghanaian as Tuozafi. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was born in East Lagon uh, when it was still called Baulishi. I still prefer to say my hometown is Baulishi. Uh, my mother was born in Labadi. My father was born in Kaliu in the Upper West region. Um, I grew up in East Lagon. Um, went to school in Legon. Um, I speak Ghan as good as any Ghan person, if not better. Um, I got a head of state award scholarship. I actually went to Nandom Secondary School for my O-levels, and I went to St. Augustine's College, and then I went to the U.S. on head of state award scholarship in 1991, and I studied manufacturing engineering um, at a little university in Ohio and then ended up at Virginia Tech where I studied engineering, science, and mechanics. And then I did a PhD in materials engineering um, and an MBA from MIT. And I spent over 16 years working mostly in the medical devices space. Um, and I've been back, I came back to Ghana in 2015 um, as the founding dean of engineering at Ashasi University where I was for about two and a half years. And then I migrated to Academic City College, you know, building an end of spectrum technology type university. So um, I'm, I'm as Ghanaian as, uh, as Tuazafi as I like to say it. Interesting. So you started your academic journey as a, a manufacturing engineer. That's what you did for your yes. bachelor's degree. Undergrad. Yes, and sir. then you went on to do advanced studies in material engineering. That's correct, yes. If, if we say somebody is a manufacturing engineer mm -hmm. and a material engineer, what, what materials mm -hmm. engineer, what, what really does the person what, do? What does that mean? Okay, so yeah. everything you make is, is made out of materials. I mean, even in Genesis, it says, let there, let there be light and there was, and, and, and light is material. So essentially, material scientists like to consider themselves as uh, the premium of all engineering because without materials, you can't do anything. Um, our next stages of development, whether it's in the electronic space or it's in the material space, requires materials engineering. So 
manufacturing basically means that you take materials and turn it into products that people can use. And so what I set out to do was to figure out how to manufacture, how to use materials to do it, and then how to understand you know, the statics and dynamic properties that allows us to transform materials into products. Mm-hmm. So my educational journey was almost triangular. I did materials, I did mechanics, and then I did materials. And it was deliberate because having one wasn't enough. You need to synthesize this. So you, you did this manufacturing, you did mechanics, and you did materials. That's correct. Yes, sir. Yeah, you said earlier that you did materials, mechanics, materials. You didn't mention the uh, manufacturing. No, I did manufacturing, uh-huh. mechanics, and materials. Okay. In that sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and for you to really develop a product, you need to be able to converge these three basic areas. You know, and then, of course, the electronics come in and stuff like that. But the fundamental basis of manufacturing as we know it lies in materials. Interesting. So you create, for example, um, if an aircraft manufacturing company or a vehicle mm-hmm. manufacturing company says, look, mm-hmm. the metals we are using for the body of the vehicle, they are too mm-hmm. heavy, so they make the vehicles heavy and they affect, say, aerodynamics. But we want a lighter material which Mm -hmm. has the same strength or even is stronger than the aluminum or the other materials you are using. You have to Mm -hmm. sit down to figure out how to create that material for that particular industry to give them the result. Exactly. Exactly. So the materials guys will have to go to work and then they will come up with different concepts of materials and then they will pass those materials on to the mechanics guys. And then the mechanics guys are the ones that are actually going to do the computational mechanics, the testing, and then they'll come back and say, all these four or five materials you've given us, this is what we think is the best candidate to go into an aircraft system, whether it's structural or whether it's engine components. So it's, it's really a handshaking process, you know, where the material scientists will come up with something uh, the manufacturing guys will convert it into a product and the mechanics guys will do the analysis and then help you eventually choose which components get into an aircraft system. Mm. I know that you have a lot of, you've invented a lot of things and you have a lot of patents as well. Um, yes. What are some of the things you've worked on so far in your, in your, in your life as an engineer? Yeah. So um, I've worked on hearing solutions um basically you know by the time you are 60 years old your ability to hear has diminished significantly um and like reduction in eyesight people are usually in denial uh, but some of the stuff that i invented will help you to hear better uh, they are essentially computers in your ears uh, they will take sound from the environment process the sound for you to hear um, and, you know, some of the fundamental changes we brought into that direction is the electronic versions of it. Once this computer is in your ear, you have two, two ears, which means that once you program one side of the ear, you should be able to transfer that information to the other ear. So just helping people to have easier, better lives um, through things we take for granted every day. When you can hear other people speak, um, you take that for granted, but 
that benefit is not for everybody. And so hearing solutions helps you to hear that. Um, some of the systems that I've worked on also helps you while you're wearing that hearing instrument to be able to listen to your television, to be able to filter noises, um, to be able to walk into an environment where your system actually recognizes that environment and tunes itself so that you can have a normal hearing function. Um, I have worked on syringes. I mean, these common syringes you see in hospitals that we all take for granted. You know, somebody draws the injection, reconstitutes that injection and shoots them into your body and you go home and it looks like it's a 5-CD or it's a 10-CD solution. But these are pump systems that requires you to select the right set of material, the right set of lubrication, the right set of metal, the right set of polishing of that needle to make sure that when it's inserted into you, you don't feel optimum pain. Um, I've worked on those. I've worked on syringes um, for India. Um, there was a major problem in India a couple of years ago where people were actually harvesting syringes from trash cans. So used syringes will be harvested from medical waste, cleaned up and repackaged. And this actually led to an outbreak of hepatitis where over 3 million people were infected. And one of the things that I did as director of injection systems was to figure out how to develop new syringe systems that ensure that they can only be used once. So once you use them, they can't be used again. If somebody else tries to harvest them for repackaging, um, at the end, they will not be able to pull them out. If they did, they will break. Mm -hmm. I have worked on hospital beds. I've worked on therapeutic surfaces. So what most people don't realize is that in the healthcare continuum, there are mattresses that you sleep on that are not like the mattresses you sleep on in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. These are actually mattresses that are part of your care, which means when you move, the mattress moves. When you are lying on them for too long and you are beginning to sweat, the mattress understands that you are sweating and they will be able to wick away some of that moisture from your skin so that you don't get skin breaks. Um, we have developed systems that will actually massage you to en enhance blood circulation through your body. So again, you don't get bed sores. Um, bed sores can actually be one of the hospital-acquired systems that can affect a patient's um, um, and healthcare. Um, so I've worked, I've worked on a series of things. I mean, I consider myself a perpetual inventor um, and I just find simple solutions. I mean, that sounds right very now, interesting. Like so yes. you were talking about hearing aids and the last yes. time I checked, the Ghana Statistical Service was quoting about 200,000 or so Ghanaians being deaf. So with yes. those kind of hearing aids, if, if, if mm -hmm. we're, say, producing them in Ghana at a cost mm -hmm. which makes it affordable uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of people, um, a majority of these 200,000 Ghanaians who cannot hear could mm -hmm. get to hear, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, those are just estimates. The statistics are quite stark. Because if you look at the global production of hearing instruments, 90% of hearing instruments that are made around the world only end up in Western Europe, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Hmm. And 10% go to the rest of the world. That is China, including the BRICS, uh, the, the BRICS and Africa, only get 10%. But as you age, and also in this time of loud music, 
a lot of us are going to suffer the consequences of hearing loss as we approach middle age. Uh-huh. Um, so the 200,000 Ghanaians is woefully underestimated. I would project that about 10% of our population probably have hearing, hearing problems from, from medium to advanced hearing loss. So, so, so there is a very big market or there is a, a, a huge need for hearing aids in the country. And it's something that you've worked on and invented, which actually works. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a need. And, 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 you know, in places like South Africa, where the health infrastructure pays for it, uh, there's a lot of activity there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in West Africa, where there is no insurance coverage, uh, people actually live with this ailment um, and, and they cannot really get help. I will tell you that in the last five years that I've been in Ghana, I've received hundreds of calls, you know, of people who either have parents who are struggling or have spouses that are struggling and they need hearing aids and they can't have them. They are expensive. Um, access to them is limited. And and we can I actually have the ability to create that infrastructure in Ghana, you know, from, from the electro-optics aspects all the way to the manufacturing and setting of hearing instruments. This is interesting. So is, is, is this hearing aid solution something you own, you have a patent to, that if we decided to, say, produce in Ghana, we could put a structure in place and produce? Absolutely. I mean... The, the technology is 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 actually quite easy, you know. Uh, in the last twenty years, it has evolved significantly. Uh, the, the basic components are being able to 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 capture the noise from the environment and then push that information through a signal processor and then outlet it into the patient's ear. That's just the basic, you know. Uh, that's the fundamentals of it. It's, it's not that complicated. I don't think there are any outstanding patents that actually prevents us from being able to build basic, simple instruments. Um, what did it take course, to, 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 to do this in Ghana? Like, have our own factory of sorts and, and build hearing aids in Ghana? I would say that, you know, an investment under $1 million US dollars would do it. An, an investment under $1 million to do it. And it will serve not just Ghana, but the sub-region. My guest um, on this edition of the City Business Festival is Professor Fred Magbagonluri. We are talking about the work that he's done so far as um, a researcher, as an engineer. This year, we are just focusing our attention on our researchers, our scientists, our engineers. And we are talking about the solutions, the various solutions, many, many solutions that are looking for problems to solve that they have sitting on their shelves and in their minds. And Professor Magbogonluri is sharing some of them with us. So far, he's talked about hearing aids that he's worked on. He's talked about hospital beds that he's, he's worked on and some other things. Now, Prof, the, the most recent work that you got yourself involved with was the ventilators or is it respirator so which is which is it respirator or ventilator <laughs> well those are words that are interchangeable but usually ventilators means that you know you have systems that interface with the with the internal organs um, of the patient so mm-hmm. a ventilator would mean that you are pushing air into the lungs and it's endotracheal which means it's inserted in the patient's mouth or nose 
um, inside the patient's nose. Um, usually a respirator is something that sits and it's more external. Okay. So you have a, a respirator sitting on. But, you know, those words are often used interchangeably. I mean, some people also like to say a respirator is simply some sort of face mask that doctors and patients wear. <laughs> but I, I think I, I think the difference is one is internal and one is external. Great. So your your most recent work that I know of is working on a ventilator with, with a team yeah. of um, students and scientists and volunteers. You started this when, um, in the early days of the coronavirus um, pandemic in Ghana, there was a global pandemic, but Ghana had not recorded cases yet. And then we started recording cases, realized that we were under-resourced when it comes to some of those things like ventilators. And you went into this. Where are we with that yeah. particular project? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting question. We actually stood up when the world was turning down. That's how I like to put it. And... That's a characteristic of engineers. You know, we like to be problem solvers and we don't cower, um, even in the face of overwhelming adversity. So we, we built about six different prototypes of air compression systems. When I say all air compression systems in, in, in an, an event that we have thousands and thousands of people suffering from corona that you need to deliver air to them, we have systems that you can scale up to do that. Um, and so I would like to say, and I have always said that we have prototypes, which means that the next step, obviously, is to mass produce those. Mm -hmm. So we have about six technologies that we have developed today that can provide relief to people who need, who are going through acute pulmonary distress. We can deliver that. Um, we got to a point where we actually needed to build some intelligence into the system which means that as we deliver air to the patient, if they begin to respond and they begin to breathe, we have to be able to detect that phenomena so that we can control the amount of air that they are getting without being drowned in air. And so obviously we had to go external to find those sensors. And so that kind of delayed our process a little bit. But I think we are at a point where, you know, if there was an outbreak and we needed to build respirators or ventilators, we can do that. We, we have actually have the technology to be able to do that. We are actually now trying to be more advanced, you know, trying to build the, the 50,000, 80,000 type ventilators capabilities. And so that's where we sit right now. So, 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 so the project you worked on, you have everything ready, but um, we are not using it because they are, they are it's left with a few things to be added to it to make it fully operational. Is, is that the case? That is, yes. I mean, what we set out to do, we've done it, which means that if somebody had accurate, uh, acute respiratory disorder and we needed a ventilator, we have a system that can do that. So that phase of the project is done. Now, what we are trying to do is to begin to add some of the whistles and bells that you will see in the $80,000 ventilator and trying to do that at 1,000 CDs, which means that we have to import components from China. We have to import components from the United States. Um, so, you know, the first part of your question is that were you guys able to achieve a system that can help provide support for a patient? The answer is absolutely yes, we can do that. Um, if, the next phase 
obviously in product development is how do you make it as sophisticated as possible? And that's kind of where we are playing right now. So, so the ventilators you have, for example, as we speak, Ghana has um, over 10,000 cases of COVID-19. This is me yeah. being charitable with the numbers. I know it's, yes. it's, it's more, but it's more. I, yes. Yeah. As we speak, we have over 10,000 cases. Um, from the Ghana Health Service website, mm -hmm. actually, mm -hmm. um, we have over 100 people who have died from COVID-19. Um, as we speak, right. we have um, 16,700 cases of COVID-19. Should right. should the situation go south, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. it happens that we have more cases and more critical mm -hmm. cases, and we need ventilators deployed immediately, mm -hmm. can we use the type mm -hmm. of ventilator the, the, the types that you've 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 worked on, and how many can we produce if we need more to 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 serve the health service? Absolutely. So I'll tell you what a doctor said from Kolebu, one of the, the team of five medical doctors that came to visit us, one of them said, looked at one of the prototypes and he said, I can use this today. So, you know, what we set up to do was not to build a, an $80,000 ventilator or a $50,000 ventilator, but something that will be as cheap as a um, 1,000 CDs. So, you know, in that regard, I think we can produce that. We also know for sure that you can assemble one of the systems that we've built in 25 minutes. Okay. So, you know, at minimum, we can produce 20, 30, 40 of those a day. And that's, that's, um, that's a good production rate. That's absolutely, you know. And I, I did a webinar recently with WPI, which is Worcester Polytechnic Institute, um, showing them our ventilators and their ventilators, and their remark was, wow, this is pretty simple. You know, and that was their intent. The, what we tried to do was to, to answer the question, if the whole world were shut down today and you couldn't buy a ventilator from China or the United States, even if you had $20 million in your pocket, what will you do? Mm -hmm. You know, and we said, okay, we can give you one for a 1,000 CDs. And it will be as easy as the bellows in a blacksmith shop. And it's going to produce the same amount of tidal volume that can resuscitate the alveoli in a patient's lungs. So hmm. we've done that. There's no doubt about that. We've been able to do that. We believe that we'll be able to provide a comfortable solution for people that are suffering. Um, but if you've done product development before, you know once you do the basic, that is not the end. You really want to get it to a point where you have some brains in it, some electronics in it. Yeah. So our next obvious stage is to say, okay, now if somebody's lungs have collapsed and this system can resuscitate them and allow them to get some treatment, can we add a feature that says we should be able to develop the ability to detect when they are breathing so that we don't continue to push air into them? And so that's the next obvious phase of what we are trying to do, to build more intelligence into this system. But we can deploy the systems we have today in the field. Interesting. Now, let me turn your question around and put it this way. If sure. the whole world got into full shutdown mode or full lockdown mode, and we could not bring in anything from outside or take anything inside to the outside, do we yeah. have the brains, the minds, and 
the know-how to create the solutions we need in the country. And I'm, by brains, I'm referring to, do we have enough smart scientists, engineers, innovators, inventors to create the mm-hmm. solutions we need to keep us going as a mm-hmm. country? No, Ghana has never liked brains. I mean, um, as I travel around the world, and I'm, I'm happy to tell you, I've been to more than 60 countries in the world. I've always been impressed with the quality of Ghanaians, engineers, and scientists that I have met. I am, I'm, a, I'm just a product of, of that ecosystem. Um, in NASA, in Lockheed Martin, you meet Ghanaians of global standing who can do things. You know, I always smile when I get this question because I think we've, we've never been challenged enough. Oftentimes, we, we have politicians and non-engineers and non-scientists speaking for the Ghanaian scientists and engineers. This is a nation of quality, a nation of high standards, a nation of really, really great intellectual capital that is yet to be harnessed. So my answer is yes. If we are challenged, if the situation demands Ghanaians, engineers, and scientists, male and female, will stand up like soldiers. Have no doubt. Prof, I know you know better than me when it comes to this space, science, technology, innovation, invention, and all that. And you say that Ghanaian scientists or researchers, engineers, are not challenged enough. But I want to disagree with you in the sense that I've also spoken to a lot of them who are doing so many things with very little support. For example, when you announced that you wanted to fix, you wanted to create a ventilator, you asked Mm -hmm. for volunteers to join you. And mm-hmm. you, you, you also obviously needed some kind of funding. Where did you get your funding mm-hmm. from? Did you get, get it from a structure within the country or the states? Mm-hmm. Or you got mm-hmm. the, the funding from ex, an external source whose job really is not to mind you, a Ghanaian scientist? Actually, the interesting thing in my case was that I got a lot of funders from within Ghana. I was actually extremely touched you know, by the level of enthusiasm of Ghanaians who were not engineers or scientists, but they believed in the Ghanaian spirit. I had a retiree, a Ghanaian retiree lady who called me up and said, I will give you guys 10,000 CDs. Mm -hmm. And she visited me three days ago and saw what we were doing and she was so impressed. You know, and I just looked at her and I said, Madam, if I have 10 of you, I think this nation will rise up to the challenge. It will rise up to take its place in the arena of intellectual capital. That Ghanaians are actually very enthusiastic. Most of the funding that I got, I had people driving to Academic City College with Banku and Tilapia to feed (laughs) the team. I had people coming in with face masks to support the team. You know, it, it was just amazing to me how many how many of our citizens are enthusiastic about innovation? How many people believe that Ghanaians can rise up to the challenge and they were willing to make sacrifices? People were contributing five CDs and 10 CDs just to get the team going. But, but really, is this a sustainable way of supporting research and development that will, will, will create the solutions we need and help us to scale to solve our problems? Obviously not. Obviously not. I think, I think we need 
two-pronged approaches. Um, getting the enthusiasm of the populace to creating that ecosystem where innovation actually matters in our daily lives, where we are convinced that innovation can move the needle for us. It's one way. The next obvious way is that within our budgetary constraints, we have to make provisions to support innovation. It has to be a deliberate effort. You know, and I think government is making some of these efforts. I mean, there was a recent announcement that government was going to devote 1% of GDP to research. Mm -hmm. I think that is proper, you know, but beyond that, we have to understand that it is not just a simple devotion of cash to innovation, but that that is actually going to make an impact, that that 1% investment in innovation is going to come back as 20%, you know, um, uptake on GDP for the nation. And that is what we need to understand. I think the challenge has always been, if I put in this money, what am I going to get? You know, but if you don't put in that money at all, you are at risk. You are at risk of not being able to even buy technology when you need it. Um, because nations tend to be a little more inward in times of crisis, you know. So my new slogan has been innovate or die. Mm -hmm. We're getting to a point where your money cannot buy you innovation. It has to be organic and has to be locally developed. So I think we need to push the enthusiasm of the populace themselves to understand that something great can come out of innovation. And we need to look at within the, the constraints of our budget itself to say this is what we ought to devote um, to, to develop. Because without that, um, even our educational system suffers. Because what happens when you graduate all these engineers and there's no place for them to go work? All these scientists and there's no place to go work. So I think we need support. We absolutely need support from government. Even the most advanced countries devote money to research and, and development. So you've mentioned two things. To get us um, competitive, we need to get the populace to be interested in science, technology, and innovation. Absolutely. And two, we need to deliberately put some funding structure in place through the national budget to fund science, technology, research, and innovation. Absolutely. And uh, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the hearing aids. You said that yeah. if you had funding of half a million dollars, you could yeah. put up a factory in our country which will produce hearing aids affordable enough for our population and good enough to be exported to earn Ghana some good forex. That's correct. Interesting. I'm asking all these because I feel, and from what you said, that if we don't do something right now as a country, we are going to lose out because we are in a global pandemic it's, it's a time of crisis and every country is looking inward and i feel that this is the time for ghana to take people like you very seriously and put mm -hmm. and, and make you the frontliners for national development mm -hmm. absolutely okay. you know i've been approached by people in south africa you know i've actually got a ticket bought for me to fly to south africa and see how i can help them set up a hearing instrument factory you know, so others are seeing the potential and the question is, why not us? Mm. This is interesting. My, my, my name is Kojo Agotobwati. I'm talking to Professor Fred Magbagonluri and we are talking about some of the work that he's done so far. And um, he's done so many things. He has patents for so many things and we cannot exhaust all that within this particular interview. So, Prof, for people who would like to know some of the stuff that you've done, people who would like to partner you, people who would like to fund you, I, mean, I think funding is very important. 
is there a website, a platform where they can find more about your works and get in touch to work with you to look at how we can scale some of the research and some of the prototypes that you have? So I think they can obviously find me in Wikipedia. I'm quite available on Google. Um, you know, I've done a lot of things, but you know, the beauty of what I do every day is to do things that I've never done before. And for me, that is really the essence of being an engineer. We, we solve problems. Um, people always ask me, what kind of engineer are you? And then I ask them, what kind of problem do you have to solve? You know? So, I, look, I think we are at a sweet spot as a country right now. The opportunities are enormous. There's nowhere else in the world where new ideas and technologies are sought after than in Africa. From our fishing industry to our manufacturing industries, there are op tremendous opportunities to even do the things we do better. Of late, I've been working on a ventilator for our homes because even your air conditioning system just circulates the air within your house. It doesn't dilute the air with external air. How can you have a better air conditioning system than what we have today? Yeah. This, these are the things that I interrogate every single day. How can we teach our kids better? I always feel that by the time we get them at the university, it is too late. I'm trying to start a new school that focuses from crash all the way to high school to provide an infrastructure for our kids so that they can compete globally. I want a system where teachers understand 80% of the things they teach and that kids understand 80% of the things that they are taught. Today, that is not the case. For us to become a nation of inventors, we have to focus on our educational system. And we have to look for simple solutions to the things that we do every day. And expediency is what leads to, to importation. We cannot import ourselves out of global crises when they come. We have to stay our ground and tap into this great Ghanaian talent that has made contributions to the world from NASA to Lockheed. And nothing makes me more prouder than to have come from Ghana, gone to Nandom Secondary School in St. Augustine's, and to have met many other people that are pushing the frontiers of technology. And almost so I think, into space after you became the finalist for the NASA Candidate Corps. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're trying to push the boundaries, and it doesn't take too much. We're already spending the money that we need to be innovative. You know, when we buy furniture for Parliament, instead of building them here, it's money that we're losing. You know, my students are building incubators. Second year engineering students are building in egg incubators with capabilities of 700 eggs. And so when you talk about job creation, you cannot separate that from innovation. We have to be innovative in even how we provide platform for students that are graduating from our universities. There is nothing like unemployment. There is only deficit of ideas. And it is time to grow beyond that. Two Parting quotes that I'll pick from what you've said. We cannot import ourselves out of um, a global crisis. And there is nothing like unemployment. There is only a deficit of, of intellect. And so we need to work as a country and prioritize science, technology, engineering, innovation, uh, manufacturing to get us to where we want to get to. Prof, it's been great talking to you about all the work that you do. I hope that we get to spend some more time to talk about your work at NASA and how you nearly landed in space. At the, at, at, at the right time, I'll find you so that we'll talk about that. But it's been great talking to you and learning more about the work you do and your thoughts on science, technology, and innovation. Um, thank you for being with us on the City Business Festival. 
and we wish you all the best. You come and see the ventilators and the incubators and see how we can keep promoting makers like you, inventors like you, to help Ghana um, 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 drive growth and solve our problems the right way. Thank you for joining us, Prof. As always, thank you, Kojo. Professor Fred McBagonluri, inventor, engineer, writer, president of the Academic City College, great school. You may want to check them out online. Um, he's played key roles at the Ghana Climate Innovation Center. Uh, proud to all this, at, uh, he's proud to join in Academic City. He was the, um, how do I put it? He worked at Ashesi University as a founding dean of the Engineering College of Ashesi University. He's worked in a lot of global companies and um, he is co-inventor on 22 issued US patents. And he's your ideal striker when it comes to people any country needs in developing solutions for national development. It's been great talking to you, Prof. The City Business Festival is brought to you by uh, CTFM and CTTV and is sponsored by APSA Bank Ghana Limited with support from GIPC. My name is Kojo Akutobatin. Thank you for listening.